praise the Lord for His love. Amen? Boy, it is so good, and it helps us so often, and it gets us through trials, and it uh, first and foremost saves us, and that is the wonderful news that we have this morning, the story that we can sing, the gospel that we can proclaim. Let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Peter this morning, near the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter, these are two letters that Peter wrote to the believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they were scattered because uh, there was persecution and there was opposition uh, against believers uh, in the middle and end of the first century. And um, Peter wrote these letters. These are two of the last letters, really, um, probably prior to Revelation. Uh, Nothing came later than these two books uh, that Peter is writing to encourage uh, believers around the world at that time and to tell them to keep going. And in the letter, if you look at some of the themes and you can study it this week, Peter reminds us of the hope that never fades. And he talks about the confidence that we have in Christ to save us and to give us an eternal inheritance. And in light of that, he talks about uh, the trials that we face and some of the opposition, again, that was going on in the first century uh, that, that we are going to experience. And he talks about how to offset that opposition that's always going to come. We know that, right? We shouldn't be surprised by spiritual attack. We should be surprised sometimes by the subtlety of it and the insidiousness of it, but we should never be surprised that the enemy is going after us and going after our church. What we do need to be uh, doing is be prepared for that and know how to offset it when it does come. And Peter talks about how to do that throughout the book, and we'll just take a little section this morning, but he talks about it uh, by being actively holy, by having a holiness that is ongoing and progressive and taking an aggressive stand against sin and following Christ's example in all things. And throughout the book, he keeps coming back to those themes, the theme of suffering and, and, and spiritual attack, and then how we, in light of the suffering and spiritual attack and a response to the suffering and spiritual attack, are supposed to be so divergent in how we live from our culture. Now, this is especially salient for Peter. It's very relevant for him because he sensed, as he wrote this, and remember, this is uh, almost 2,000 years ago, he sensed, as he wrote this, the shortness of the time. He sensed in history, in, in what was going on around him, that, that things were not going to last forever. Now, he had been told that by Christ, but in his uh, understanding and his watching of what was going on around him, and again, uh, the opposition was really increasing by the time these books were written uh, mid to late first century. He, he really sensed that something was going on. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 7, which is probably on the same page that you're on, he says, the end of all things is near. Now, that wasn't, um, you know, Chicken Little crying. He really believed that time was short. And if he believed that 2,000 years ago, how much more urgent is the time that we live in? How much more desperate is the age in we live in that Jesus Christ's return is any second? Now, many of you have talked and, and we've uh, prayed about over the last few months the spiritual attack that the church has been under, and, and really it's been stronger than ever. And when we hold that up against the world events over the last few weeks especially, there should be no question in our minds that we are in a very, very serious battle. 
And we need to be very fervently prepared as disciples of Jesus Christ for how to live in and respond to that and offset it. Two weeks ago, I threw out this concept of the summer of selflessness and how the Lord has really been impressing upon us uh, the importance of self-sacrificial living. Not only that we would be holy and set apart unto him as we're called to be, but also so that we can defend ourselves and we can defend the gospel and we can defend the church against this kind of attack. And this week he very quickly and very clearly led me to this passage in 1 Peter 5. And again, this is such an important and straightforward and kind of simple practical application uh, in these spiritual principles. I I am convinced as I get to the end of this week that this passage is for us. So we really need to study it with great sensitivity to God's word and, and hearts and minds that are very swift to hear, very swift to accept, and very swift to to uh, live this out every day, okay? That's my introduction. First Peter chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 6. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, these verses are very familiar to most of us, if not all of us. Many of you can quote verses 7 and 8 from uh, the memorization that you've done. But the verses that are around them, the the ones that bookend verses 7 and 8, maybe aren't as familiar. And yet they have a very powerful calling for us and a very strong reassurance for us. Anytime in Scripture you see a verse that I call a plaque verse. Everybody know what a plaque verse is? not talking about a verse that you write on your teeth. I'm talking about a verse that you would put up on the wall, right? Somebody respond that you know what I'm talking about, so I don't feel like I'm alone here this morning. Some, a verse you'd put up on the plaque, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Somebody may have that plaque in their church. Great verse. It's a verse we should put up. It's a verse we should know by heart. But anytime you have a plaque verse, you need to look at what's around it. Because that verse never comes in isolation. It's never a verse the Holy Spirit just says, this is the only one I want you to see in this text. Just gravitate to that one, and you don't need to see what's around it because it has no relevance to the plaque verse. Always look at your context because the context is absolutely key. And we need to uh, remember that as we pull these verses out that we know that, that the Holy Spirit is saying there's stuff around it. Yes, the enemy does roam around seeking whom he may devour. But I want you to see, he tells us, what hinders that. And if we don't do it, it's going to enable him. So this is crucial. If the enemy is coming to seek to devour people, if he wants to have the souls and the hearts and the minds of people, and he wants to attack like he has been, then we better be prepared. Because if we can't offset him, we're going to enable him. So he says, look at what's around here. Notice what's going on. Notice the context. 
because it's very, very important. Look at the first action he says. He says, humble yourselves. This is not just lip service. This is not just, well, what kind of feel like doing this or, or what kind of act like we are. This is a deliberate choice. Notice the next part of the sentence. Be under the mighty hand of God. Humility is most genuine and most effective when it is a response to God's lordship over our lives. We talked about lordship about a month ago. We talked about the need to willingly surrender ourselves to him every single day. And when we do that, when we submit ourselves to him, he humbles us. Now we go, well, that doesn't sound very fun. I don't think I really like that thought that, that if I surrender myself, which can be very hard because I've got a lot of pride, and I'm speaking about every one of us, myself included, we have a lot of pride. We don't like to submit. We don't like to give in. We don't like to yield. We, we, we like to fight and get our own way. Come on, you know it's true, right? So, so we say, well, submit myself to the Lord. Well, I've already done that. I, I, I asked him to forgive me. Great, that's wonderful. Now it's every day. And we say, all right, well, I've got to submit myself. I think I can do that. But, but then he's going to humble me. Boy, that, uh, I don't know. Can we do this whole submission thing where he raises me up and I don't have to be humbled? Absolutely not. But we need to not be scared of the humbling because actually the humbling here is awesome. It is awesome. I want to hear an amen after I say the sentence. It is awesome to be humbled by God. It is fabulous to be humbled by God. It is the best place that you can be. Because at that point, you're exactly where God wants you to be. And he says, I'm not going to take advantage of that. You're my children. You're my believers. You're my examples of my grace. And you're my servants. In case we're fearful that that means a loss of personality or a loss of freedom or a loss of whatever, look at the incredibly uh, gracious reassurance that he gives us after he says this, look at this. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We could stop right there, but God doesn't stop there. He says that he may exalt you at the proper time. Why in the world would God want to exalt us? Why would he say, oh, that's great. Now I'm going to raise you up and, and, and I'm going to notice you. Why would he do that? We don't deserve that for one second. He gets all the praise and all the glory and all the exaltation. But he says, oh, if you humble yourself before me, I'm going to exalt you. It's a deliberate act. It's a volitional act to be under his lordship. And he will exalt us and bring himself honor through that. But there's a first step to doing this, and then it's followed by two intentional actions. Look back at verse 7 for a minute. Casting all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. It's only 11 words. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here's the response portion of the message. How much anxiety does the verse tell us to cast upon the Lord? Tell me. Say it louder. All. We doing that? He says, all your anxiety... Everything you've got, all the nervousness, all the fear, all the worry, all the cares, 
all the insecurity, all the junk that's in there that's keeping you up at night and making you nervous and making you not be able to pray and, and, and all that junk. He says, I want you to give all of that to me. Do you see any equivocation in that verse? Do you see any exception in those 11 words to the rule where we can say, all right, well, the verse gives me some leeway. I'm allowed to hold on to some of it. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to carry the, the big stuff. You know, come on, Paul, this, this stuff that's really got me going. I, I, I can hold on to some of that. You don't understand what's going on. Just, just let me have it. God says, uh, I'm not giving you leeway in 11 verses, 11 words. Cast all of it on me. Put everything in my hands. And notice that we're not supposed to just passively hand it off like, here. Come on. All right, I tell you what, Lord, I'll just I'll drop it right there. You take care of it. Come help me, Lord, we say without any passion in our hearts. Notice the verb that is used here in this text. He doesn't say passively hand it off, kind of keep clinging on to it, kind of hold on to it as I'm trying to take it from you, kind of look back like Lot's wife, longing for, oh, I wish I could just have a hand in that because I think I could solve that better than the Lord because he's going to humble me. He says, cast it off. It's a fishing term. It means to throw it away from you. Now, I'm no fisherman, and I know that's no surprise to any of you at all. But I do know that to try to get the bait to a fish, there are two methods. One is casting, and one is trolling. When you cast, you throw it away. You send it out. You get it out there where the fish are going to be in the hope that they will see whatever you have on the lure as part of their natural ecosystem. You like my use of the green term there? That, that, that it's out there in the water where they are. So you don't want it near you. You want to get it out there. And then you sit in the heat with the bugs. And, and no wind. And you sit there for hours. I, I'm sorry. I love you guys that fish, but I don't understand that. Go get some nice salmon to pick and say, or anyway. So when you cast, you go, but when you troll, that means that you pull it alongside you. You kind of keep pulling it to, to lure you. You keep it hope close to you in the hope that the fish will see that as kind of active bait. Now, too many times in our lives, we tend to troll our anxiety and our cares. We don't, we, don't, we don't get them way out there. We keep them close by. And we pull them alongside us as we try to advance and mature in our faith and become people of prayer and become people of great trust and reliance on the Lord. But we keep kind of dragging along the cares and anxieties and saying, well, I'm, I'm giving them to the Lord because I'm praying, but I still got them with me. And they tend to drag on us and drag on our faith. How can we say, I'm giving it all over to the Lord if we're still holding on to the pole going, well, I need this close by, though. It's kind of a comfort thing for me. Cast all your care on 
the Lord. We're not really sincere about walking by faith and not by sight unless we do that. But if, if that's still a struggle, then God gives us a very simple but important fact that, that will help us in this. Look at the end of the sentence. Cast all your care upon Him because what? Tell me. He cares for you. Do we have any concept, and I don't mean to be pejorative here, do we have any concept what an amazing, life-changing, profound statement that is? He cares for you. Somehow, He cares for me. I have no idea why. He has no reason. He cares for you. The God of the universe, the one who set all the stars in the sky, the one who knows every blade of grass out there that's either dry or painted or living, he knows every one of them. He knows every hair on your head. The God of the universe who made it all and controls it all and has been eternal forever. Don't ask me how. I don't get it, but he has. That God is very, very concerned about you. He is very concerned. That's what the word means. Not just he cares like, oh, I care. Yeah, it's great to see you. No, he is very concerned about you. And I really want you to let that sink in this morning because it changes everything. Whatever issues you're dealing with today, whatever stress you have, whatever you're concerned about, health, marriage, family, children, work, insecurity, uselessness, sin, your past, whatever it is, he cares about it. He's concerned about it. And He wants to protect you and provide for you and make sure you are in a secure position even in the face of spiritual opposition and attack. Now we have a responsibility beyond the Look back at verse 8 because He gives us two very distinct actions to help and sustain us. They're very simple. Don't miss them. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Now let's describe what those means. A sober spirit is spiritual, emotional, and physical. It is a fervent desire to be set apart and holy under the Lord, to not be distracted and dissuaded by the cares of life, and that leads to intentional decisions to strongly resist sin, to, to carefully avoid anything that will lead us into temptation and to continually fight the battle against selfishness. That's what being sober in our spirit means. Now, the opposite of sober is what? Tell me. Drunk. We should know that in this state, right? Highest rate of drunk driving deaths in the country. The opposite of sober is drunk. Drunk means to be intoxicated or to be out of control. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can be drunk in our lives other than alcohol. We can be drunk on pride. It corrupts our hearts and our minds, and it takes the emphasis away from serving the Lord, and it puts us back on us, what my desires are, what my lusts are, what my needs are, what I want, what I want, what I want. People can be intoxicated with pride. Look at celebrities. Look at athletes. 
They just can't get enough of themselves. Then we can be intoxicated with physical and sexual impurity. It occupies our thinking. It becomes something that we have to have. We chase after what's dishonoring to the holiness of God. And we pay a heavy price in terms of our marriages and our families and even our churches. We can be drunk on what I call unguardedness. Having a soft attitude towards sin. Putting ourselves in situations that allow us to be open to temptation and not fighting what happens. Not taking the way of escape. Loving liberty more than we love holiness. We can be drunk on materialism. I must have, I must buy, I must, I must, I must get everything that I can. It can preoccupy our thinking and control us and become the pursuit of our lives. And we can get drunk on, drunk on substance abuse. Even a little bit which dulls and damages the mind and produces bad decisions. These are the things that the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to get these things away from you. You need to throw them as far away from you as you possibly can because they are causing anxiety and they're causing you to be drunk on the cares of life and you're not giving things over to the Lord. They are preoccupying your heart and mind and they are doing severe damage. Now we know that's true because the common denominator in all of those things is self. And no one was more personally acquainted with that topic than Peter. Nobody knew more about the experience of making bad decisions that were motivated by his own self-interest, even at one point as Jesus Christ stands a few yards from him, and Peter curses and says, I never knew him because he's worried about himself. There's nobody that understood that more. And while the Spirit of God we know gave him these words, how much more meaningful is it that it came out of the quill that Peter was holding? If James wrote this, or Timothy wrote this, or even Paul wrote this, it would be a great truth. But when we see Peter write it, oh, we know that he knew about this because of his ego. He was an expert on the topic based on his past. But he was also an expert on the grace of God. And his life had been so radically changed and he was so completely sold out for Christ that he can say with integrity at this point, 30 years after Jesus went back to heaven, he can say with integrity, listen, don't let your ego get out of control. Don't let your desires spiral to the point that you're drunk with them. Have a sober spirit. Listen, I hope that we understand just how serious the times are. I hope we understand just how world-changing this war against the Lord and this war against the Word really is. This, this little thing about Chick-fil-A, okay, I'm not plugging, you know I'm there every day, so I don't need to promote them anymore. This thing about Chick-fil-A is just a microcosm of how unwaveringly and pervasively Christianity is being attacked and how strongly biblical values are being stepped on by a culture that is determined, determined to advance an unholy agenda as far as it possibly can. And the opposition now is beginning to smell blood in the water. And it is not an overstatement or hyperbole to say that the next four months 
will literally impact the course of human history and the future of our country. And it will give us an indication of the imminence of Christ's return if he doesn't come before then. And he could come at any moment. But if he does not come in the next four or five months, what will happen in our world will give us an indication of just how much we need to be looking at the sky. This is not a time to relax. It is a time to have a sober spirit and to make sure that our heart and mind are exactly where they should be because the conflict is increasing. And just so we don't miss out how active and intense this battle is, look at the next warning. He says, be on alert. In other words, don't let your guard down. Don't take your eyes off the screen. The attacks are consistent and they're pervasive and they're lethal. If you've ever seen a movie about a submarine, how many have ever seen a movie about a submarine, an old war movie, okay? Most of you. You ever seen the guy doing sonar? You know the guy, he's always got the headphones and glasses and he's kind of, you know, he went to MIT or whatever and he's, he's looking down at the screen. Have you ever seen in one of those war movies the guy at the sonar sitting back drinking a Frappuccino? Hanging out, talking to his buds, headphones on, drinking coffee, not looking at anything, just kind of chatting up everybody. Now, you never, ever see that. His focus is completely on the screen, and he reacts quickly and decisively when those couple blips show up, and he says, somebody's attacking. There's, there's a torpedo coming. Something's coming along that's going to harm us. That's what Peter's saying. Here. Have the posture of complete spiritual focus, ready to respond quickly to quell the enemy's offensive against your faith. Now, as I said, we've seen plenty of evidence in this congregation over the last two months because the spiritual opposition against us has a goal. Peter describes it. Look back at the verse in verse 8. He talks about the traits of the enemy and the nature of the attack. And these words should sober us because they're chilling. He says, the devil is our adversary. The word means enemy or opponent. And he says, here's how our adversary attacks. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, we've all seen enough History Channel or documentaries or Marlon Perkins hiding in the tree while his friend gets mauled to know what this looks like, right? We can picture a stalking lion in our minds, how he walks through the tall jungle grass looking for the, for the prey that is weak and the prey that doesn't know that the danger is coming. But as I came back to this text and how many times have we studied this text, there was a word that jumped off the page to me that I'd never really thought about before. It says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, every documentary I've ever seen about lions hunting gazelles or antelope or something with little spindly legs, the lion is walking very quietly through the grass, right? He's not making a show of himself because he's stalking his prey. He's looking around. He's waiting for that moment when he senses the weakness. So why does the Spirit say, Your enemy stalks you like a roaring lion. The the lion wouldn't want to make noise, right? Because that would, the the gazelle would go, what? What was that? Hey, Charlie, there's a lion over there. We better get out of here. 
And yet the Spirit uses that word here, and it's very instructive. When a lion roars, it's trying to communicate two possible things. I never knew this before until I went on the computer and found out the information. Amos 3 says that a lion roars to create fear in its enemy, and it roars when it captures the prey. It roars to, to, to stun and paralyze, and then it roars when it wins. Now let's talk about each for a minute. Because fear has the effect of emotionally paralyzing whatever is being hunted to make the job easier for the lion. So sometimes as a lion is hunting, it will roar, and that momentary pause of anxiety, when the roar comes, is enough for the lion to say, now I have the advantage. When he roars, all of a sudden, the gazelle goes, and in that moment of stopping and fearing, that's when the lion wins. Now, we know this from our own experience. It's why the greatest offensive against the opposition is our faith. And it's why the attack will always be to undercut our faith, most often by creating fear. It's why our faith must be confident and steadfast and unwavering. And when that first crisis hits, when that first trial is there, when that moment comes where we know there's a problem, not to say, what am I going to do? It is to immediately respond with faith, to trust more deeply, to go to a different level in our dependence on God, to pray more fervently. That is so crucial because the enemy, if he can somehow get us into the mode of fear, focused on the uncertainty instead of the power of God in us, he will gain advantage. If in that moment of crisis you go, ah, he's already got an advantage on you. If we learn and grow and mature as believers, where in the moment of crisis we say, all right, Lord, I am going to trust in you for this. All of a sudden, the lion's disarmed. Think back to the guy sitting at the sonar, okay? When he sees the blitz on the screen, his first response is not to panic and start running around screaming. How many think that would inspire confidence in his crewmates? There's two blips. Ah! Goes running through, hits his head. You know, he's wandering around. We gotta get off the submarine. Surface, surf. Imagine. They intentionally pick the guy for the sonar who's the calmest. So when the blips come, his first thought is what resources am I going to use to counter this attack? How are we going to fight this? Because his training and his confidence is that every attack has a counterattack. And guess what? He's got an arsenal of powerful weapons on board that will not only offset the danger, but put them in a position of strength. So the blips come. He doesn't freak out. All right? What do we want to do? How are we going to fight this? That's coming in pretty quick. You've probably seen the movies. A thousand feet. 
900 feet. Everybody's like sweating and, you know, it's all red. And you're like, ah, what's going to happen? You know they're going to survive, but you're still like, yeah. 700 feet, 600 feet. Captain, what are we supposed to do? They don't just sit there and say, hit us. They've got countermeasures that will respond and offset the danger. The same is true for the prey of an actual lion. That scrawny little gazelle that really has no meat on it, so you kind of say, why is the lion hunting that? Why doesn't he go chase a hippopotamus or something? Really eat for a couple days. But that scrawny little gazelle who has no business getting any advantage knows that if it runs fast and it turns and turns and turns. I actually saw a blog about this last night where they've done physics studies on this. Okay, I couldn't understand them because I didn't do well in physics, but, but I read it. Okay, that says something, right? They said, and I won't be able to explain this, but just go with me and trust me that I know what I'm talking about. They said because the, the lion has so much more mass that it can't turn as quickly. So if the gazelle, as it's running, goes, boop, 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 the lion's like, ah, and it can't respond. And if the gazelle does that enough time, it gets away. See, that little gazelle with the scrawny little legs that doesn't look like it could stand on its own, God gave it the mechanism to be able to get away from the lion, even though it has no business winning. But if that gazelle doesn't use the mechanism that God gave it and stops and goes, what am I going to do now? It is dead meat. Now, when trial comes, if we stand and say, the enemy starts to move in. If we're controlled by fear, we get devoured. And that's the second thought here. We know believers can't lose their salvation. We're assured of that by Scripture. But we absolutely can lose our joy. And we can lose our strength. And we can lose our progress. And we can lose our witness. That's where fear is connected to defeat. The focus goes back on self. And we try to figure out how we're going to manage the situation. And how we're going to overcome the problem. Even though we have no wisdom or ability to do that on our own. And we lose ground. I even saw this a couple weeks ago. The Lord teaches you in strange things, right? I saw this during that double header the softball team a couple, uh, played a couple weeks ago. You remember those? Awful, awful Monday night. We had won six in a row coming in the game. We probably had a little too much swagger like, look at us, we've won six games in a row. And we came out and we weren't emotionally into it. We didn't hit well and we didn't field well and we, we made an out, we made an error, and you could just see. I, I was probably the worst defender in this. You could just see in our body language that we just went. <sighs> and you know what happened? We started to get fearful about losing instead of being confident that we could win. And we started to make bad decisions, and we even got frustrated with each other. We lost our strength as a team, and we started to regress. And you know what? It even went into the stands. You guys didn't cheer like you always do. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying you're watching our pathetic display. You're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh. Let's talk about DBS or something. I don't know. I just, we gotta, 
This is like a train wreck. We can't watch this. We'd make one out. Yay! Like we just won the World Series. You guys finally got an out. That's awesome. You've led in eight runs. We lost our confidence, right? And you know what the other team did? They saw it. And they started to press harder. And they started to run more aggressively. And they started to cheer each other while we're out there kind of walking around like this. On a much larger scale, that's what the enemy wants to do with us spiritually. He wants to do it to our marriages and our families and our church. And again, if he can create fear, if he can paralyze our confidence and undermine our strength and hinder our progress, he'll start to get advantage of us and damage us. But if we look to the Lord for help and we use the incredible, powerful resources that God has given us to offset and overcome the enemy who has already been defeated by Jesus Christ forever, then the enemy will lose his effectiveness. And then look at what the Lord tells us next in verse 9 to do. Let's read it again, verse 9. We're almost done. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. There are four important spiritual truths you can write down here. Four important spiritual truths that God tells us we can do. Number one, we can resist the enemy. Not by our own effort, not by our own will, not by our own wisdom, but by the power of God in us. The Lamb has overcome the enemy. Not Paul Rhodes has overcome the enemy. Not Harbor Rock Tabernacle has overcome the enemy. The Lamb has overcome the enemy. It is all based on Jesus Christ. So the more we live by His Word, the more we yield to Him, the more we call on His name, the more we live like Christ, we will have humble self-confidence out of our self-sacrifice that the power and victory of Jesus Christ that's working in and through us can defeat the enemy. But it starts with choosing to resist. Put off sin. It's so simple. It's three words. Why do we struggle with it? Put off sin. Take the way of escape. Fight the battle. Fight the good fight. Don't compromise. Second, the key to the resistance, look back at the verse, is to be firm in our faith. The word firm is important there. It means strong, steadfast, and immovable. Faith that is unshakable. We've seen why faith is so critical in the battle and how fear collapses our confidence. The reason why it's impossible to please God without faith is that strong daily faith, if we don't have that, it means that we don't rely on the Lord to help us. That that we say, God, you're not strong enough. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have the wisdom to help me at this point. I don't think you got enough in the arsenal. You go, well, Paul, that's way too strong. Actually, I'm not being strong enough. If we don't trust the Lord, we are saying, God, you can't overcome this. You can't do it. And then Jesus says, what about that? 
What about the cross? Didn't I do that? Oh, yeah, and I'm so glad I'm saved, but you don't know the trial I'm going through. He goes, are you kidding me? I've overcome everything. I've defeated sin and the devil and death forever. You are free. You better trust in me. I can take care of it. Firm in our faith. Third, recognize that every believer has the experience of opposition and suffering. You are not alone and you are not unique. We were having a dinner in Charlotte the last night we were there with an old friend of Julie's that we haven't seen in probably 15, 17 years. She's had some real heartache and sadness in her life, and we talked about those things, and then she asked us about our life over the last 15, 17 years, and we told her about some of the struggles that we've had and some of the heartaches and sadness that we've gone through, and then we talked about friends and family, and we realized that They've also had heartache and sadness. And by the end of the conversation, we concluded that we've all been through it. We've all been spiritually attacked. We've all been impacted by personal sin. And we've all been impacted by the sins of others. We're not unique. We've been through different things. But we've all struggled. But that's part of the experience of walking with the Lord. It's what Peter talks about in verse 9. Look back at it. Some of us may suffer worse than others, but none of us is exempt. And before we say, well, it's unfair, or it's too much to handle, or it doesn't feel like God's helping us, and it doesn't feel like God's defending us, and I don't know what to do, read verse 10. After you have suffered, tell me the next four words. For a little while. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, he's not going to leave it up to the angels, he'll do it himself, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the fourth spiritual truth. And the one that motivates and encourages us to do the first three. The challenge is short and temporary, but God's help and victory is eternal. What you're facing right now, it's temporary. It may last the rest of your life but it is temporary. God's grace and help and victory is eternal. Notice that Peter says, after you've suffered for a little while, the Spirit's words to him are intentionally diminutive. Just for a little while. In other words, don't sweat it. Don't live in fear that the opposition is going to last a long time. I'm with you always. I've given you the resources to overcome it. You've got my spirit. You've got my word. You've got my promises. You've got my protection. You've got the body of believers. You have your faith. You have the absolute assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. This junk is just for a little while. But let me remind you of who you trust in and serve. It's the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Not the God of a little grace. The God, the God of some grace. The, the God of enough grace to help you scrape by. Wouldn't that give you confidence this morning? We serve the God of all grace. Excuse me. We serve the God of enough grace to get you just through tomorrow. And then Tuesday we'll see. He says, I am the God of all grace. There is not a thing that is lacking. Nothing will overcome you. Because I own it all, and I'm the victor. And I have called you 
to eternal glory in Christ. What a contrast to the pathetic sufferings for a little while. Listen, I'm not trying to diminish what some of you are going through. I know it is awful. But keep the perspective that in the light of eternity, it's just for a little while. And he is the God of all grace. And look at what he's going to do when we're insecure and we're anxious and we're fearful and we're wrestling with temptation and we have too much of self. God says, I'm not going to let you stay that way. You're my children. I am going to perfect you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. Literally, what that means, he'll make you complete, make you strong, make you stable, and make you secure. Sin will not have an effect because it has no power over you. He's already overcome it. You're not going to let it undercut your faith. You're not going to let it diminish your confidence. You're not going to let it attack your maturity. You're going to live in the peace that God gives you because you trust in him and he has already won. And notice, this is not talking about heaven. This is talking about right now. He's not saying, oh, believer, when you get to heaven, God will perfect you and secure you. He's saying right now, this is what can happen in your life. He can secure you and strengthen you and confirm you and make you complete in him because he is faithful. How many want that this morning? I want that this morning. I want that this morning. I want to be marked by the confirmation and strength and establishing of the Lord. And it is all accomplished through him. Because look at the last person we'll pray. He has dominion and power and authority forever. Let's bow our heads. Let me ask you just in the quiet of the moment, have you thrown all your cares out to him? I know that's a hard question for any of us to answer fully, yes. But there's a difference between Lord I've given you everything. It's hard, but I'm still doing it. And Lord, I am not going to submit that to you. I don't know if that's where you are this morning. As I said, some of you are going through very, very difficult crises right now. We will pray for you. If you want to come up, we'll pray for you after the service. But that care, that daily care, that anxiety, that that nervousness, that I just can't give this up. It's overwhelming to me. You've got to get rid of that. Don't troll it alongside your life. Cast it. He is the God of all grace. You will never, ever find the Lord insufficient. You will never say to yourself, God didn't do enough. If anything, you'll say, I can't believe how much he's done. Why would he do that? Lord, this morning, some of us are struggling. You know the difficulties and trials in our life, and you know the things that we're holding on to that are not pleasing to you. You know the things that we're continuing to hold on to because for some odd reason that they're comfortable to us even though they're driving us crazy. Lord, I pray this morning for 
a movement of your spirit throughout this room, that you would convict us of that and that we would surrender those things to you. Lord, we've already heard a testimony this morning of how you've done that in one of our friends' lives. We've heard your faithfulness to his family in what should have been a horrific accident. We've sung about your greatness. We've studied about how you work and how you protect us. And we know that the enemy's pushing. He's going to push as soon as we walk out the door. But Lord, you are faithful. And we praise you this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room that needs to turn that over to you, that right now in the quiet of their heart, they would say, Lord, I give it to you. I surrender it to you. It's yours. I can't hold on to it anymore. I'm going to trust you for it. Lord, we know you'll be faithful. We thank you this morning for the confidence that we have in your word. We thank you for the confidence that we have when we trust in you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives to increase our faith and to bring us closer to you. We love you when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.